This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This is Reset, and I'm Susie Yon. The state of Illinois surpassed 14,000 COVID-19-related deaths this week and continues to see thousands of new daily cases. We did see movement on the vaccine front. A U.S. government advisory panel to the FDA endorsed the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. But there are still questions as to how it's going to work and whether it's safe. Here with the latest on the pandemic is Dr. Mia Teramina. She's an infectious disease specialist with the DuPage Medical Group. Dr. Teramina, welcome back to Reset. Hey, Susie. Great to be back. So, Dr. Teramina, Illinois surpassed 800,000 cases and the United States has seen 15 million individuals infected with COVID-19. Can we expect that these are the worst numbers we'll see? Do you think that case numbers will soon become lower? You know, we're still in the midst of this surge. And even with vaccine rolling out, we are going to see the numbers continue to climb probably into January and possibly early February. And then we will, in combination with weather warming up again and things like that, us, you know, getting outside more, less social gatherings, hopefully, and the vaccine getting more uh, distributed, we will be able to get over this hump. But the, the worst of it, we're still in the thick of it numbers wise. Yeah. Well, do you think people learned any lessons from Thanksgiving or will Christmas and the other upcoming holidays make these numbers worse? You know, I think the challenging part is, is that when you look at the numbers, people are saying, well, Thanksgiving wasn't that bad. It seems like, you know, we we didn't have too many issues. And yeah, you know, you hear these anecdotal things of some family members getting COVID. And we've certainly seen that as well. The problem is there is a significant lag. You know, sometimes the significant issues with COVID don't happen until the second week or sometimes after an individual thinks they might be well on their way to recovery. It's not uncommon that we see our ERs start to pile up with individuals who are well into a known course of COVID. So there may be people at home not feeling well right now, possibly presuming they have coronavirus and not necessarily even being on the radar of someone that's going to end up with some significant issues. So I don't know that lesson has been learned. And, And people that quote unquote got away with having some larger gatherings over Thanksgiving might feel that they are well within the clear to do the same for Christmas and the other winter holidays. So we could get into trouble. Yeah. So maybe we haven't felt the full effects of Thanksgiving COVID-19 spikes just yet. Dr. Allison Arwady um, has stated that we haven't seen the number of deaths peak. What sort of a peak should we be expecting? You know, it's it's hard to truly guesstimate, but I will tell you that in, in my personal experience, it's not uncommon to have individuals who have a very tumultuous course once hospitalized if they are severely ill. So it's not that someone who has got infected around Thanksgiving is going to have an unfortunate turn of events 
patients and pass away quickly. We may have these individuals struggle in the hospital for weeks, and we might not necessarily see that potential death until at the end of December or into January in some mm -hmm. cases. So unfortunately, there are individuals in the hospital right now that in all probability are not going to make it out, but they're also not actively passing away today. So it's it's really hard to kind of tease out where the aftermath is, but the, the numbers will be coming. They just are. People are still definitely dying of this. Oh, yeah. We've got a caller, Zach in Ukrainian Village. Uh, Zach, you're on Reset. Hi there. Uh, I had coronavirus positive diagnosis about a month ago. Thankfully, I'm okay. So how do I navigate society now? Do I, you know, can I travel? Can I be out? doing normal things, going to the store, like what's what's my risk and, and how should I use this information? Oh, that's a good question. Dr. Taramina. Hey, Zach. So we'll touch on a couple things. One of the common questions I get when someone has recovered from coronavirus is, do I need the vaccine? And the answer is yes. So you would definitely still get your name in the hat for the vaccine when it becomes available to you. However, it is reasonable to wait for 90 days because we believe that most people who have recovered from coronavirus are exceptionally at low risk to become reinfected sooner than 90 days. But after that, your risk in theory could drop down to that of the general population. So you would want to go ahead and get vaccinated. There's no immunity pass. Even, you know, vaccines are not 100% effective. Even with these outstanding numbers of 90 to 95% effective on the vaccines coming to market, there's a small chance you can still become infected. So you're going to still want to be mindful, uh, have social distancing, have mask wearing. It's going to take a while for this country to achieve the necessary circulating antibody in the community to achieve that sort of herd immunity. So not a whole lot changes. And we would still encourage you to, to exercise caution. Your chances of getting infected are less than the next guys, but we still need to be mindful. Thanks for that, Zach. Let's head over to Evanston, where Harold has a question. Harold, you're on reset. Yes. My wife and I frequently, we enjoy walking outdoors. We frequently walk around the northwestern campus. I would say 70% of the people are masked outdoors and about 30% aren't. And people will run past you and bike past you and walk past you feeling that because they're outdoors and they're near the lake, they really pose no danger to anyone that they're encountering. Is that baloney or, or is there some validity to that? Doctor. So we know at this point in the pandemic that masks work and we know that social distancing works. And those have been the two mitigation strategies that have led to us, you know, really having some positive outcomes and being able to have certain gatherings and meetings and whatnot. Outside is always safer than inside. Walking uh, with uh, just your wife, someone from within your home, you two are in the same isolation bubble. If you were completely alone and going for a walk and no one else really in sight, it's not unreasonable for you yourselves to be unmasked. Regarding the rest of the folks around, that might be zipping past you on a bike or a run, you really do need a cumulative amount of time less than six feet from an individual who's unmasked in order to have a higher risk. So we encourage bikers and runners who choose to be unmasked to still try and maintain that bigger social distance even when passing someone. The problem with being outdoors and unmasked is when people still gather. And that's especially an issue with some of our younger people who may have a bonfire or something along those lines where they're unmasked and still within close proximity to one another. So masking indoors or outdoors, but always when social distancing cannot be maintained. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Teramina, you know, I, I'm, I'm out with my kids and we're meeting in groups where everyone's masked out in the backyard. And what often happens is the children's masks just get soaked, you know, because they're running around. Do you recommend that we just bring extra masks once we see that dampness to just go ahead and change it out? Yeah, any mask that's grossly soiled or retaining moisture like that should be switched out. And with these cloth masks, and you know, before we had coronavirus and we had kids running around in scarves in the winter time, they would get all moist and humid as well. Uh, we may have noticed that as adults, but yeah, having an extra mask or two on hand at all times for kids is very reasonable. Not just because of condensation, a nice big hearty sneeze or cough might warrant switching the mask out as well. Uh, we've got another caller. We're going to head back to the city. Jane in Chicago, uh, you're on Reset. Thank you. Doctor, a question for you. We just heard the Chicago Teachers Union representative talking about the health concerns of teachers, noting how they're people just like everybody else, right? And so I'm wondering, in looking at the risk that so many other people face working in as healthcare workers, as grocery store clerks, as policemen and other city and state workers. Can you say that the environment that a teacher would face during remote learning in a classroom is is less safe than those workers? And do you also have a recommendation in terms of whether you personally think as a healthcare provider that they can be back safely in the classroom? Dr. Thank Tarina. You. You know, this is a obviously challenging set of, of questions. I do feel and have felt this entire time that we need to prioritize our kids being in school. To the extent that a small number of teachers have health comorbidities or are, are over the age of 60 or 65, those can be uh, certainly treated on an individual basis uh, to look at the risks and benefits of being in the environment. The difference between perhaps a healthcare provider or uh, a grocery store worker or another essential worker is that we're moving around quite a bit. We're not in the same space for a prolonged period of time. But what we do know is that with mask wearing and social distancing as able, and I would encourage, you know, six feet when possible. Possible, but we have certainly data that shows four or five feet, three feet and up recommended by the World Health Organization as being reasonable as well. So mask wearing plus social distancing within the classroom, we are not seeing classroom super spreader events, meaning that a masked teacher exposed to a masked student is highly unlikely to become infected with the virus. There are no impossibilities here, but the risk is greater outside of the classroom than inside. So I do think that we need to move towards getting these kids back in school as safely as possible. Well, we've got Nancy in Logan Square. Nancy, you've got a question for Dr. Taramina. Hi, yes. I have a parent, this mom, and she hasn't been able to help her daughter for the last three weeks in class. We're in kindergarten. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm still quarantined. I can't, I can't help her because for the past three weeks, I've been coming out positive. She's taken the test at least three times, the coronavirus test, and comes out positive. Is there... Any test that would be the best to take to be able to determine if she is, in fact, infected? Mm -hmm. Dr. Teramina. That's a great question. Um, depending on the age of this parent and their medical comorbidities, the vast majority of people are cleared by around day 10 or 11 by a time-based strategy, meaning if at least 10 days have passed and 24 hours fever-free, there is no repeat testing required. At that point, you can still retain a positive nasal swab because that nasal swab can still detect dead viral particles. One way to give some reassurance if that's something that's insisted that she requires to have an additional test 
testing-based strategy would be to get an antibody test. Once the antibodies are positive, it adds credence to the fact that detectable nose swab represents dead virus. But I would encourage that individual to speak with perhaps an infection specialist about clearing them if they have no other significant health issues, because beyond 20 days for sure, nearly everyone should be cleared. Mm -hmm. The COVID-19 vaccine is very close to federal approval. Um, Give us a reminder of what we can expect to happen after it does get that approval. Uh, Certainly, we are in full anticipation of receiving a supply of this vaccine next week to the extent that most healthcare settings that are receiving a supply have already committed those vaccine doses to the highest risk individuals. I have an appointment next Thursday to get my first Mm. dose. So we already have appointments on the books. There's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. The CDC has advised a tiered approach to the most at-risk individuals in healthcare settings to try and get those with the highest risk exposures vaccinated ASAP, and then down the line all the way through individuals that potentially have much lower risk exposures. Mm -hmm. As the quantity and supplies of these vaccines ramp up, obviously our extended care facility residents are going to be at the top of the list as well. And I'm truly encouraged by the new administration suggesting that educators should be pretty well Mm -hmm. high on the list thereafter. Those are um, among our most critical to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got a call about vaccines. Philip in Norwood Park. Philip, you are on reset. My question is, does the efficacy of the vaccine vary based off of the strains? Dr. Taramina. That's a great question. The coronavirus does have multiple strains. However, there is not enough shift between these strains like we might see in certain influenza strains that the vaccine is presumed to give similar immunity across all of the strains that are currently present in the community. We have not had enough of a variation at the genetic level to create something that would be that would overcome this vaccine at this point. I'm going to take another call from Terry in Edgewater. Terry, you're on reset. Hey, I'm wondering, do you just call your doctor's office to actually get the vaccine? We want it. You know, we're, we hear a lot of stories about people who don't want it or might not want it, but we want it. How do you, we're 70 and 72 respectively, how do you actually get the vaccine? Dr. Tiramina. That's a great question. You know, we are certainly having our offices bombarded with calls of similar enthusiastic people, and we very much encourage the enthusiasm for the vaccine. Your doctor's office should be communicating to you when the availability is there. No one's going to be hiding the vaccine. When that vaccine comes out, you should get calls and notifications, especially if you have a MyChart or some type of portal access to your health system, to look for communication in the coming weeks. Certainly, over age 65 is going to be among one of the higher risk groups. So whenever and wherever you can receive the vaccine, if you get a notification from a healthcare system or from your private practice physician that you are eligible and there's availability, don't wait. Go ahead and get it as soon as it's available to you. Thank you, Terry. And we're going to head back to Ukrainian Village with Denise. Denise, you're on reset. Hi, Dr. Tarmina. Thank you so much for doing this. I just had a question about blood type. I've been hearing people comment that they hear that depending on blood type, there's some correlation with how susceptible you are to the uh, virus and not. And I just wondered about that and the vaccine. Doctor. So we have seen over time that those with A positive blood type uh, tend to have a more challenging course. Mm -hmm. So uh, the vast majority of individuals in the hospital that we are seeing along the way do tend to have that A positive blood type. Among people with type O blood type, there seems to be a less intense course, Um, but these are not absolutes. We absolutely see uh, significant health issues with uh, people with all blood types. But yes, that A positive blood type has been kind of singled out as, as a poor player in some cases. Wow, that's interesting. 
Well, uh, you know, we, we know that children are likely to be the last ones vaccinated for COVID-19. Can we expect that cases in that demographic of young people to, to go up because of this? Not necessarily. And that's a very common the thought process. Uh, what's going to happen here is, first of all, the Pfizer vaccine did get approval in 16 and up, which I think is great. Those who have children between the ages of 16 and 18, please talk to your doctors about if the vaccine is right for your child. There are currently trials ongoing with age 12 to 16, and then Pfizer has committed to starting trials on age 5 and up this spring. So it's going to be a significant period of time, possibly a year, before our youngest kids are eligible to receive this vaccine. We need to, as healthy adults, roll up our sleeves to get this vaccine to drive that herd immunity to protect those that cannot be vaccinated at this time, including our children. So it's not necessarily that we're going to consolidate the virus into the weakest because they don't have any vaccine protection. We essentially should be able to drive their rate of infection down because these kids may be getting exposed from vulnerable adults and other family members. So everyone that can get vaccinated should get vaccinated. We've got another call, Mary in Auburn Gresham. Mary, you're on Reset. Dr. Tiramina, I recently saw a newscast regarding uh, Boston doing a check of their total water cleaning system. And I wanted to know whether or not to they did the, the check to determine how much COVID existed within the overall community. And I wanted to know if you know if the Water Reclamation Center here in Chicago is doing, a, you know, also testing for COVID and the overall water system to determine how much COVID exists in the community before it is really determined later on through testing. That's interesting. Dr. Taramina. That is interesting. I've definitely heard of other similar quote-unquote sewer studies mm-hmm. where they have looked to see how much prevalence of, of COVID virus is, is seen in the sewers from human waste. We don't yet know how to extrapolate that information to truly get a solid percentage of incidents in the community. We know that in the Chicago area, we anticipate that at least 10, approaching 20%, may carry antibody in the Chicagoland area. So one in five people in Chicago already has antibodies, and we need to go up from there. I'm not aware of any type of mass public health testing of the sewer or water supply in order to establish that fact, but we do know that over time we are going to need to have some concrete ways of estimating scientifically how much antibody is present in the community. Mm-hmm. We're going to stay in the city. We're going to head to Lincoln Square where Matthew has a question. Matthew, you're on Reset. Hi. Thank you so much, Dr. Teramina. I am a pastor in a local church, and we have been putting off worshiping because I know that one of the things about COVID is that things like singing are especially a way to spread things. I'm wondering, at what point in time do you think it'll be safe to actually get back together for in-person, indoor worship? Mm -hmm. Dr. Taramina. That's a great question. That's going to also come within sort of a full return to a phase five. And when we get to phase five, that's when things should be able to fully open, still with some mask wearing and some social distancing. But when we have these higher risk activities gathering in groups, we're going to need to see that community spread, which currently in the Chicagoland area is at 11, 12%. We need to get that down to that five to 8% and then even below 5% before we can start having a congregation, you know, of more than 50 people, um, singing and and things like that to be lesser risk activities. So we're a a little bit of a ways off from that full experience that we are used to in the past, but we're getting closer and closer to it each day. Let's take another call. We're going back to Logan Square with Jenny. Jenny, you're on Reset. 
So uh, I'm currently battling cancer. I'm about halfway through chemo. And, you know, of course, there are a lot of other people who have, you know, illnesses where they're immunocompromised. And I was curious if it's actually more important for us to get the vaccine sooner rather than later, or if we should hold off because maybe the vaccine would trigger more of a, an illness, you know, an immune response that would make us more ill and more susceptible to illness. Hmm, Dr. Taramina. That's a great question. It's it's the million dollar question, essentially. We're still waiting for guidance on special groups. Recruited into these vaccine studies, we're healthy adults. So we don't have a lot of data on our immunocompromised individuals. You are the exact people that we would want to protect, which again is why I reiterate that healthy uh, adults should absolutely get vaccinated to protect individuals like yourself who may have to wait a bit for a little more information and recommendations to see when and if it is safe for you to be vaccinated. Vaccinated. At this point, in the very, very early stages, in the first weeks of vaccine rollout, uh, anyone with significant immunocompromise should have pause and definitely speak to their doctors before receiving these vaccines and or consider receiving them in a healthcare setting if need be, uh, as in like a hospital setting in case there was an adverse reaction. There are certain immunocompromised groups that we are holding on uh, as well at this point, but we're looking for more information as the days go on. I think in a matter of weeks, we should start having more and more information about these special populations moving forward. Mm -hmm. Let's squeeze in one more call. We've got John in Elgin. John, you're on Reset. Hi. Yeah, I have uh, several comorbid conditions, uh, including asthma, uh, kidney disease, heart disease, hypertension, among others. And I'm 68 years old. And given uh, that since March, I've been told we've been able to get testing, and that has really never developed, I'm curious as to what your vision is on the real prospects of these things happening. Dr. Taramina. I'm 100% confident that vaccine is coming. I mean, we we all but have it in our hands at this point. Uh, this uh, emergency use authorization that was granted for the Pfizer vaccine, which is all but uh, a done deal, uh, will have a similar process next week for the Moderna vaccine. Having two vaccines on the market is going to lead to, you know, tens of millions of doses, up to 100 million doses in the coming months. So we are going to have a significant amount of vaccine available in the community. While I don't know that it'll necessarily necessarily roll down to the general population of healthy adults and before perhaps the spring, I think that someone with significant comorbidities like yourself will be fairly high on the list. And once, you know, we get our healthcare workers and most vulnerable nursing home residents vaccinated, I think that you will be getting communication. Hopefully, I would have to, to guess January, February to get a vaccine yourself. Thanks for that. And Dr. Taramina, as we wrap up here briefly, how do you think our country and city will look when some people have received the vaccine and and others haven't? Do you think that we'll be seeing an odd division of people where some are living like normal and others still in isolation? My vaccine that I'm getting next week is not an immunity pass. I will still be masked. I will still be social distancing, and I will still be respecting the need to drive that herd immunity. That's going to take some time to come, but it is a bright light at the end of the tunnel. I encourage everyone who can get vaccinated to get vaccinated, and I encourage everyone to continue to use all the mask wearing and social distancing while we wait for our entire nation to be able to have the amount of vaccine needed to get through this. That's Dr. Mia Taramina. She is an infectious disease specialist with the DuPage Medical group. She joins us Fridays to answer your questions about how to stay safe during this COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Taramina, thanks as always. Thanks, Susie. For more Reset interviews, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a rating and a review that helps other listeners find us. 
For more about the program, you can head over to the WBEZ website or follow us on Twitter at WBEZ Reset. Before I go, I want to remind you about the start of Reset's new host, Sasha Ann Simons. She'll be in the chair starting Monday and is eager to get to know you. I know we here at WBEZ personally couldn't be more excited. That's it for Reset this Sunday. I'm Susie Ann. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.